Welcome to the Crash Chords Podcast. I'm your host, Steve. I'm your host, John. And I'm your host, Matt, a.k.a. Stormageddon. You don't always have to say hosts. Or do you just, you have to now because I said it? Yeah, well, we have to follow. Otherwise, we're it's following. implied that you're guests or we're, something lesser. You're, you're a trendsetter. The person who goes first ooh, is ooh, the he, trendsetter. He knows how to grease the wheels. I, like I was going to say, yeah, that's probably the only time Steve has ever heard that. Yeah. <laughs> Once... Ten years ago. <laughs> wow, he actually has a specific case that just got sadder than I wanted it to. Ouch. Hey, at least this it is, was said. It's, like, it's like a Charlie Brown Christmas. Like that's a sad oh, yeah, tree right? moment. Exactly. Yeah. I love that. Everything sad just goes tree. poof and goes. Yeah, exactly. Anyway, uh, it's the holidays. It, it is. It is the holidays. We are recording this smack dab in the middle of Hanukkah. But but will anyone know? I don't know when this is going to be released. I have no idea. That's fine. We're we're a bit clumped together. It's somewhere in the ether. Yeah, it's a bit a bit behind. Somewhere towards the end of the year, you will hear this, hear this episode. That is true. We're a bit behind for our end of year lineup, but it will happen. It will. It's the road to two twenty five. That's what we're doing right now, and it'll probably be met sometime in the new year. But we do have some interesting final projects. One of the highly sophisticated kind, and one of the highly satirical kind. Yeah. We'll announce that at the end of this episode. Yep. But today it is sophistication. With Scattering by Prager. That is Which, right. when you told me that was the band name, I called bullshit. I, I, I really I, thought you were fucking I, with I me. actually, I called bullshit myself. Because here's the thing. I go on about how much I like prog about as much as I go on about how much I like funk. But the mm-hmm. truth is, I was about to skip over this album in a lineup of this year's releases. But mainly just because of the name. I saw the name Prager, and I was just like, that's just too easy. That's, that's too campy. A prog band named Prager. Get out of here. But luckily, luckily, I sampled them just enough to find out that this was anything but a gimmick. If there's one selling point from a window shopping perspective, well, that would be saxophones. It's kind of a jazz fusion deal. They're, they're definitely cut from more of a jazz cloth uh, to a much greater extent than most prog bands out there. But as we've discussed, prog is a form and not a sound. And so the question is, does it even fit the form? Is there even a form to fit? I don't know. The more I listen, the more I wonder if I ever would have called them prog had I not found them in a prog band listing. And of course, if it weren't for their name as well. That's another dead giveaway. But but uh, allow me to read something from their website, and then I'll read something from their Bandcamp, which is actually a little bit more interesting. Um, Prager is an unusual collection of gifted musicians who were brought together by the simple desire to create new, powerful, beautiful, engaging modern music. Originating in Austin, Texas in 2011, Prager is led by saxophonist, keyboardist, and composer Brian Donahue, and incorporates some of the most in-demand, young, touring, and session musicians from Texas and New York City music scenes. With compelling compositions and energetic live performances, Prager has steadily developed a devoted following through national tours, studio releases, and viral videos. And also, speaking of the internet with fire of videos, which is how we've at length spoken about how bands kind of make it big these days, or finger quotes big, because that itself has a weird definition these days. Anyway. um, One one man's 500 followers is another man's 10,000. Right, exactly. Um, But I 
more curious about this band and not finding them on Wikipedia, I decided to see if they were on Bandcamp because that's where I get more of the indie music that I listen to. Right. Um, and they happen to have a Bandcamp page. And what I love about Bandcamp is most bands post their liner notes there. There you are. And so I found a very interesting thing in their liner notes that kind of describes what they were going for with this record specifically and kind of its purpose. Like, outside of musically what the narrative is, the actual purpose of why they made this record. And I'm very glad you found it, because really it gets more at the heart of this album than, frankly, any of the write-ups on their own band website actually did. So, it begins, this album warrants an explanation, doesn't it? <laughs> actually, the whole band warrants an explanation. The team that would become Prager started playing together in summer of 2011, and for me, and I guess that would be uh, Brian Donahue, yeah. Yeah, assuming, and for me, it was largely an excuse to play Herbie Hancock tunes with some of my favorite musicians in Austin. As Matt Muling and I started bringing original compositions into the group and developing them at rehearsals and gigs, it became clear that we had a thing going on and that it was exciting and special. More importantly, it was fun, insanely fun. When I moved from Austin to Brooklyn in the summer of 2013, leaving Matt, Carter, Nick, Daniel, and Paul was tough, and I found myself second-guessing my decision more than once. I always planned to return regularly for shows, recordings, and tours, and every time we reunited, the strength of the group was magically undiminished, but the distance was still palpable. Moreover, I had to find a way for our music to stay alive and active even when we couldn't all be together. Over the course of my first year and a half in New York, I slowly managed to find a group of musician friends who completely got Prager's music in a very authentic way, but it immediately put a new flavor on the material. The big picture concept of the music was clearly there, and it was built on what my friends and I had started in Texas, but it was turning into its own distinct entity. After a few tours where tight scheduling, logistics, and finances required a mix of Texas and New York-based members from week to week, an even more remarkable fact became apparent. All of these people get along really get along, both musically and personally. Any combination of the two teams could make an ensemble that isn't just good, but also feels comfortable, is dynamic, understands the priorities of the compositions, and really makes you feel something. I never could have expected it or asked for it, but I'm incredibly grateful for it. As a result of this unexpected cohesion, these musicians have created the best musical experiences of my life over the past two years. This album is the first that includes both incarnations of Prager, as well as some other friends and music collaborators who are very important to me. The first part features the Texas incarnation, Matthew Muling and Carter Arrington on uh, guitars, Paul Diemer on trombone, uh, Nicholas Clark on bass and synth, Daniel Watson on drums, and the welcome new edition of Sean Giddings on keyboards. The second part features the New York incarnation, Dan Muniz and Aki Ishiguru on guitars, Brian Ladd on bass, Devin Collins on drums, Nicholas Clark on bass synth, and a couple old friends as guest contributors, Justin Stanton on keyboards and Nate Worth on percussion. I'm grateful that Justin and Nate were on a break from touring with Snarky Puppy when we recorded because their contributions are beautiful. In the end, it became not two bands, but one cohesive group that happens to span about 1,700 miles. It's been well worth keeping together despite the challenges. I hope you enjoy the music. We had a great time making it. That's fascinating. And important to note that he clearly states there, the first half of the album is one, one version of the band, the second half is another. Which I don't know that we had that frame of reference when we were listening previously, so we should keep that in mind as we're discussing it. True. But I think it's, it just, this continues to further something I, I kind of laud all the time about how in a modern era, even though the internet can be a huge pain in the damn ass, <laughs> it does some amazing stuff for music. And the fact that something like this can come together over great distances and that two separate groups being the same band could then become one giant 
super group in a, in a sense and still be the band is fantastic to me. I never could have imagined things could be recorded separately. Yeah. And also, I mean, if most of this does really have that, that in-person dynamic feel. To think there are those separate threads is just very strange to me because yeah. it sounds tight as all hell. Spoilers. <laughs> <laughs> um... All right, let's just begin with track one, Prelude, because this is, first of all, this is what I meant by sophistication. There are, there are ludes on this album. So it's actually, well, I guess that would make it a lewd album, which isn't very sophisticated. But there's <laughs> Prelude, there's Interlude, and then there's a Postlude, which is actually a new word that I didn't know existed until this album. I thought it was just them being silly. Turns out that's actually a thing. A Postlude is very much like an epilogue or an afterthought. Words, words interest me. All right, well, All right. this is shocking to nobody. But I think what's really interesting about this prelude um, for this band is that they kind of drop you in, in the middle. Like, it fades in as if they've been playing for eternity. But honestly, I like this fade-in because you kind of just hit the ground running with them, and there's no, like, here's a little bit of what we do. It's, here's what we do. Yep. Jump in. And it's very energetic. Though it's brief, it it does allow you to kind of get really steeped in what they do pretty quickly. You know, I don't have a lot of questions on that moment because of the pace it moves. But at the same time, it does have some pieces showing up here that I feel don't really show up too heavily in the album as a whole. Specifically, the 8-bit piano jam that's going on from the, the onset it it feels like it's it's I don't want to say Daft Punk, but it feels kind of Tron oriented. Specifically, that score it's got what? that kind of a surrealism plus video game feel going on. I will admit that there was kind of a hindsight observation, which I was almost going to leave at the door, but since you brought it up, I might as well say it. And that's the fact that the character of this prelude, the electronica component, the computerized component. I guess, yeah, is about reflective to me of a small portion of this album, not necessarily the whole thing. It might become more apparent when we get to that part of the album that those connections really are there. But it's true to say that this this sounds futuristic in setting, while the rest of the album can often sound futuristic with its ideas, but actually kind of traditional in setting. But it all depends on what track you're talking about. But I would argue that what this prelude really serves is a nature of their kind of personality. The personality from this track to the next are pretty pretty connected and also it shows that they're very playful which does come back time and time again throughout the record and you get a sense of that playfulness from the from the very instant this track starts and it's also extremely visual i mean mm-hmm. i know me and you were in the next track were really like synced up with the fact that we saw this futuristic setting where things were sort of whizzing by us and that's not left at the door here like right. that's that's definitely present it's just here's how i describe it because you did mention the fade in and i'm glad you mentioned that cuz that's actually kind of rare we don't often get fade ins we mm-hmm. commonly find fade outs and here's the thing we do sort of get kind of a deterioration at the end of this track. We get mm. kind of like a simmering at the very end of it. But when you combine the fact that it fades in and then you have a simmering at the very, very end, what you sort of have here is like they want you to think of this track as kind of an eternal and complex cosmic process that you just so <laughs> happen to glimpse for a, your very short time on this earth. Or perhaps the inverse, that it was a short burst of energy that came into existence and now is about to drift off. Like beautiful chaos in a way. Yeah, which I think, spoiler alert, kind of ties into the to the other ludes as we get to them. True. Which which I think... In fact, those were even more more uh, tornado-ish. In fact, yeah. that was my, the other way I was going to describe this track, is a tornado of microchips. <laughs> I, I would say that for the beginning, yes, but once the uh, saxophone steps in and supplements everything and really overtakes the track as a whole, however briefly we're experiencing all this... That becomes an identifying factor for this album. Well, that feels like the the core idea that we're being presented for 
the prelude. Well, that's true, but the saxophones, they do come in quite late into this track, or at least I hear them very late, and they come in almost as color. I want to talk a little bit about the layering here, because, alright, I likened it to a tornado of microchips, but here's the thing, as, like anything that is programmed, like, with some level of complexity, this was a pretty tough nut for me to crack. I can find the beat in a track like this pretty easily, but the time signature, who knows if there even is one? I mean, there's almost always one, but whether it's a compound time signature or constantly swapping out, but whatever. But for the for the first time, I want to leave the option open that maybe it is just a tick that only they can hear, and essentially a free pass is given to some insanely talented musicians who, as we just read, are really, really attuned to each other. They'd have to be because there's so much intense syncopation between so many elements. For one, the drums, and here's the layering I was going to discuss, the drums, they're always stuttering between beats. They're poised to leave town, like, at any second. They're but they're breakdancing on the border of the town, and they're ready to leave. But then there's the melody, these short little, these phrase bursts, like these metered sentences, which the bass seems to be doubling further along in the prelude. And then there's these high-pitched beeps, which kind of mimic the melody. They always come right after it, this little conversation between the two. And then also, later, those saxophones that you mentioned. But they're more as color. They're just these background harmonies in a hazy mist, although they're more pronounced at the end when everything else has finally melted away. And that's when I describe the, the sort of simmering at the end. So each of these things has an attack, and that attack can lead you to think, aha, pulse, one which almost definitely would conflict with the last pulse that you had in mind from the very last thing that you encountered, which is why I would conclude it's a tornado of microchips. There's that beat, but there's always this this back and forth, which makes this extremely captivating. It's one of the reasons why I kept going with this record and used it for discussion. But the more time you spend with it, the more you come to know it, and that process of coming to know it, I think, is really, really worthwhile. It keeps your interest, all those little details. Well, yeah, and the and the prelude serves its purpose to keep you interested. At least that's how I felt. Like, I was ready for the next thing. I, I There was no moment of, oh, that was brief, or oh, I don't care, or I've lost interest. Like, I was engaged the whole time. It's very engaging from start to finish, yeah. because it is this kind of sample section of something. Yeah. And then I was intrigued, and allowed myself to flow right into transit which is the second track i i there was no hesitation there was no contemplation it was just kind of like oh this is cool oh here's the next track would you say you transitioned into transit God, I, I you. you wouldn't say that, the okay. Puns. <laughs> they're, just, they're just getting worse. Yeah, well, yeah. it's not like he's going to get better. Actually, yeah. they're probably going to get worse. <laughs> considering <laughs> this track. <laughs> All right. I am going to start off by saying one thing about transit. 4-4 four, four time signature has never been this fun. I would agree. I think that... It, it, it gives this kind of like movement and bustling that we've heard in other tracks, but to the nth degree. Like it, it's, it's, it's busy and it's flourishing, but not in an incomprehensible way. You know, you can kind of get wrapped in it pretty quickly. I am particularly intrigued with what's going on in the very quiet level of those drums. The snare, okay. the cymbals, everything is just lightly being touched, but it's enough color that the complexity is showing through, that you are getting the fact that he's playing... If this was a machine, it'd be playing at a lot more beats per minute than what I'm used to. With a real physical person, it's pretty amazing. But because it's so down key, because it is so background, it's not overpowering any of the other elements. No, it's not. And also, you get to hear it uh, as a pretty prominent 
instrument in itself before you even get those other things because yeah. it, it actually is second in the lineup. It starts off with just the piano, just this bright and echoey piano. But the piano itself is slightly off. It's slightly like like a sixteenth note just before beat one, or maybe a third of a triplet just before beat one. But there's so much smoothness and and performative effect right here that it's actually really hard for me to tell. But it's totally countable. I mean, you have four measures of pure piano, and then you have those four measures of piano and drums where you get everything John just describes. And it's, those, again, those marvelous breakdancing drums. They're always shifting around, kind of messing with your pulse. You just, you have to, you have to stick through it. You have to stick with your counting. And then 14 seconds in, Ah, just just dance, just dance to this section. I've probably replayed this track, maybe the most on this album, well over fifty times, and that fourteen second mark loses nothing for me per play. Yeah, I I this song resonates the strongest for me as being distinct and memorable. Some of the other tracks, as we get to them, there are more moment focuses, but this is as a whole as a track really kind of pulled me in. I mean. You know, me and Steve, I think for the first time ever, Steve was more on board about it being closer to sounding like a video game than I was, even. That's true. And this is Steve's going to go into, like, more descriptions of instrumentally why it goes that way. But it was very interesting for Steve to actually bring up, it felt like a Sonic the Hedgehog level in, like, the old Sega Genesis games where, and I... I I kind of added to the analogy that when you play those games, you're focused on Sonic. You're trying not to die, and you're watching the the background fly by as you speed through a level, but you're not really, you're only getting images here and there. You're not really focusing on the detail of that background because you're watching the character fly through the level. It's all perspective. The saxophones that show up and the way they've been, at least one of them has been synthesized and has a weird, just just an echo to it. The bass that shows up and starts paralleling everything that's going on but feels kind of leadened, really, really feels like it's got a lot of weight on top of it, the way it's so downplayed. It's almost at that same sort of quiet level as the drums themselves. It definitely is an ambience I would not uh, I would not misplace in a video game. Yeah, and honestly, it's closer to my brand of funk. I think because I know we've like we've we've had so I've been shrugging off recent funk albums, and yet I always say, oh yeah, I'm really into funk. But th- th- this is this is the key. You get get this stuff in here, get those intricacies. That's when I'm really 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 on board. Um, but like the synth bass figuration from this 14 second point, which really at this it's kind of like a a melody. Really, it's functioning as a melody here. It's basically a one man show with the drums and the piano as its entourage, and the drums just leap off. Off the speakers in this section. They're as captivating as a drum line, and I mean the good drum lines. I only even compare it to that because it's kind of like, it feels almost like a procession. But then they return to the piano-only hook for just a few measures, despite that really that piano-only hook that we heard in the intro never really left. The piano is actually the foundation for these funky melodies, but it's similar to the intro for only a moment before we throw back to the funky dance at 36 seconds, this time adding two, count them, two rich added layers, and this actually becomes the A section that we will hear later in the piece. It pushes the intensity of what you heard at 14 seconds into a whole nother league. Those two layers are the saxophones, they start doubling the bass figuration, and they become the more dominant resonance in that department. Uh, Meanwhile, the second layer, this lush new melody takes shape, which I believe is a guitar, but it sings like another saxophone almost. There may well be something else in here. I think that's the synthesized 
element that you were talking about, John. That's mm-hmm. it's something there, but it sounds almost like a guitar. I don't know. But it's a slower melody, and it really brings out the character of the scale that we're in, and that's what I'm going to go into now if I can just get this rant out, because I'm really better off discussing the arc of this section via the chords anyway. Here we go. A quick note on chords. In fact, three notes on chords, because actually there are at least three notes in a chord. So first, the first note is that the piano chord that began the track, we're back to the beginning now. I believe that was F sharp minor and with with just maybe an added four. An added four thrown at the bottom because the voicing is very spread out. So because it's spread out, it adds to the mystique of the, the misty chamber that it's playing in. Now, there are probably other ways to analyze this, but I hear F sharp minor because you can hear the first inversion of it clearly at the top, but then that added four at the bottom is unmistakable. It's not intrusive, but it's very game-changing and very complementary. It serves to make that minor chord so much brighter than it would otherwise be. In fact, it's so bright that between that and this shoulder-popping groove after 14 seconds, you barely even know you're in minor until maybe the 30-second mark. Um, Now, until then, and here's my second point, they sort of toy around with you by temporarily lifting that F-sharp minor up to G-sharp minor. So you hear that too right in the beginning. I believe it actually functions more as a 5 chord, that's the F-sharp, and then a 6 chord, that's the G-sharp. Granted, of course, it's adding the the added 4. So it's 5 added 4, 6 added 4, but just take that opening hook. 5, 5, close to the rhythm there, but it does that pretty much throughout. It does that throughout the intro, it does it throughout the first jam, and it does it throughout the return of the hook. But what you notice is that at 36 seconds in, and that second jam, it doesn't do that so much. The piano here is somewhat buried if it's even there at all. I mean, it's so dense at this point with the sax doubling in the, with the bass and, of course, the new melody, but perhaps because we've dropped the bright added four and even maybe even dropped that six chord, we allow that new melody here to really indulge in the, in the minorishness of that F-sharp minor, the five chord, for the first time. So it may still feel like a jam, but the melody here is slow and longing, and it it really is like one continuous phrase that just crosses bar line after bar line. It's fantastic. But it wraps up quite neatly, and this is point number three, because once you think that you're used to F-sharp minor as being the home key here, the one of this piece, we transit See, there's the pun that I, that I was, that was... We transit, see, using the title of the piece's description of the piece, into some traditional jazz at about one minute and five seconds as our five chord becomes a one, and that is B major, some delectable midnight one. Because this is jazz, and straight-up jazz at this point. Yeah, and this is where I started to really start to see the kind of... Um, cityscape picture but not like i said it's moving at a faster pace you're not really seeing a clear picture but i also see this kind of i see this two ways as far as descriptors either like the sonic the hedgehog analogy we made earlier or kind of top-down rpg style like the hero making his way through the city as things are going on and people are bumping into him and like that jazz moment really kind of brings it kind of homier makes it kind of warmer it's almost like sunset in that exact same environment that you described it's just everything has taken a little bit of a dip but it's it is so much more warm and it's comfortable enough for the saxophones to reflect many of the aspects that the previous guitar melody was doing like it's it's just now it's doing it in this neon glow of this new major one environment and it's more traditional jazz chord progression um, one similarity, for instance, is its tendency to climb upward. You can feel the rungs of the ladder in the melody in each new plateau. It's really, really beautiful. Yeah, I, I really like the way this track builds and keeps moving. I never feel I never feel like I'm standing still, I guess, but that seems obvious based on how I've been describing it. But I don't I don't feel bored 
you know, it, it, I mean, this track wasn't particularly short either. I believe it was no, five, I, five or six minutes. Yep, it was a while. And so, like, but I like what I'm steeped in here. I'm, I'm comfortable with the environment as fast as it's moving. I'm comfortable with the pace. I'm comfortable with the sounds. And it's doing things with jazz that feel, feel unique for me, or at least my limited span of knowledge of jazz. Well, here's the thing. Everything we've described is really just within the first minute and a half, perhaps. Yeah. There are other sections to this track, but the thing is, it, it keeps reinventing previous material, or at least borrowing just enough from it, that it propels it along and along. Mm -hmm. And I think that is where the prog influence really comes in, because I sort of set this album up being like, is it really prog after all? It's named, it's called prog, or it's gotta be prog, but I think it's only, you have to be looking at that specific thing before the prog element comes out because just remember jazz is just as likely to go through these evolutionary changes it's just that jazz is more likely to constantly intersperse it with a series of solos and we don't really get that in transit well that's not exactly true because after this b section we we repeat it with a more subdued synth kind of a feel synth setting then we repeat a and then the following b prime shows up and i I want to really call that a real solo because of its length, because of just how much work the saxophone puts into this. Even though the bass and the drum are definitely more present here, they, they seem like they're more for context of what the saxophone is doing in this case. Yeah, and I would, agree, I would agree to call it a, a B prime because, yes, transit is really all about just one giant featured solo, a sax solo, which is so dynamic and energetic and yet so integrated with the core theme that I almost don't even feel it as a solo, but it's more like the next page in a very captivating novel. It's all pushing content, which is why I think it's appropriate to call it a B prime instead of a solo. And we have a nice coincidence here because the B section is in B major, and that just that makes our lives easier. He loves these. <laughs> Such a nerd. Oh my god! No. It's, <laughs> it's the title. That. It's the title of that. the band. It's because it's Prager. He has to I keep going with it. Uh, another element that does show up real late in that B prime is. Uh, the piano actually crossing over from the A into the B heavily yeah. and adding a nice layer of flair. It's solid. It's really nice. And it starts to gain a lot more rapidity to it. It really becomes a jam session. Mm -hmm. Well, yeah, when that piano comes in, the drums do step forward a little bit. <clears throat> Probably the only time in the track, or from what I can recall, the album, that the, the drums feel even slightly isolated, but still there is, it, it is still paired with the piano, but you can kind of hear exactly what was there, probably the whole track, a little more focused in that moment. And then it, it goes into the motion of like an organ piece. It's almost organ, or mm -hmm. it's a synthesized keyboard to emulate that kind of style, into a redux of that piano intro that we got with a lot more work in the snare and the cymbals, but now the bass is showing up. Now that It gets so much more manic. Yeah, yeah. the 8-bit scale rising and falling in, in sort of like a, a rainfall kind of emotion. Almost almost in like, I, I want to say my connection was specifically the Final Fantasy opening scene. When you're ready to load your game, that it's sort of an oscillating raindrop. Well, there's also another video game reference that we jumped over when we got to that piano drum part is there's a tone that either was or sounds very close to the Pac-Man dying sound. That's yeah, right. The, I forgot what, about what, what, that. Yeah, and, and, and I don't think it actually was. I don't think it was a sample. I think just whatever those progression of notes were on 
the synth, I suppose, made a similar sound to that. Which, considering how much we're all pulling different kind of video game related things from it. No, I think that was a sample. You know what? I'm going to really? flat out say it. I think that was a sample. Primarily, because that was just too similar. I played a, a lot of Pac-Man. It was <laughs> also because it comes in, it, it terminates quickly. Yeah. And I believe it was only in one ear as well. Yeah, like, it only it, happened. It felt like it was just right. thrown yeah. inside. Um, but for all the love that I'm giving this piece, I do have a major gripe. The saxophone itself, specifically in the B sections, before it really gets integrated with everything else, before it really, um, tries to be experimental in those A's and A primes, in the B's, because it does go towards a more traditional form, because it does seem to be, um, emulating jazz, I... I feel like the experimentation of the A's is being lost and those B sections as connected and as flowing as they are because the transitions between the two are nearly flawless, it it feels like it's a little bit of a hiccup. Like they're not allowing this one focal point to experiment the same way everything else is. Well, it's all relative because remember those A sections, you, you call them experimental, but in many ways they are they are tight, defined sections that have a beginning and an end, and each time you hear them, they're, they they are the most similar, I feel. they, yeah. they Usually yes. you hear the same thing over and over. So yes, it's extremely complex, but I, I, and I guess I do feel them kind of pushing the boundaries a little bit. It's just that that becomes kind of the theme of this. The interesting, ironically, is that the jazzy elements are the ones that actually do develop. And that's where I'm kind of stuck between a rock and a hard place. I don't know why the fact that the saxophone becomes so expressive during the B section, that it actually becomes different, that it actually expands upon its melody, that it's really playing around with everything else and not being repetitive in any way. It feels kind of almost curtailed because of it, because it's not as unusual because it doesn't feel like the context is being pushed for it. I think that's really the key. The context of the other instruments and the context of the A section pieces, when they feel like they're being synthesized, like the guitar, saxophone, we're not quite sure what it is kind of a piece. That is an unusual sound. That is something that is grabbing my attention right away. The saxophone, for all of its flow, is not grabbing my attention. Well, this may be a conversation we're going to have later because I am completely on the opposite side of the fence as that. I think the saxophone is a beautiful binding element, and frankly, I really like the fact that it's here amidst this really a kind of a new composition style, I think. So. I lean more towards Steve in just the sense that we've had saxophones and so many pop songs and so many rock songs that is just kind of there. It's a smattering or it's a cliche even. Here, it's fully integrated into the track and I think that's enough for me to really get behind it. And also, the problems that John is having I can see and even understand a little more later in the record, but absolutely not in this track. Well, I and just I, don't like feel I said it. in the beginning, you know, if there was a window shopping appeal to this album, just something you could see on the face of it, how are you going to define this? It's uh, Prague with saxophones. Boom. And yeah. and all of a sudden, you you have this nice short little selling point. Yeah. You could at least say to someone, and it's like, oh, all right. Yeah, I would try that, because that's not so common. Yeah. And I think that in itself is what makes the saxophone unique. It's not something holding it back. It's the thing that does make it different. Maybe it's just the fact that I feel like the saxophone is trying to do two jobs at once. And that is be both the voice of the track, voice of the piece itself, as well as lead instrument. And it's sort of... If you have a four-piece, a five-piece band, 
with vocals, you can easily di- differentiate that lead instrument and the vocals. You know, you'll get no here, argument from me there because it is doing to do two both. things. I, I think, though, it is sectionally doing both. And the integration between the two different ideas isn't quite there yet for me. I guess I just like that it was doing both, like what I was describing in the A section. But uh, Ed, for the rest of this, I think this is probably one of the... I will say That's this it, is but one this of this is the, a nitpick on this yeah. piece. I want to point that out. This, and, well, this that's is what I was going to say. For here. this piece, I think that this piece is one of the tightest constructed pieces on the album. There are moments here where they take, you know, some jazz liberties and prog liberties and they go off right and they go left, but this piece is just pretty solid front to back down to the way the A or the A prime rather comes back at the end. Yeah. I'm, I just was loving it and I, I even loved the jokes and the samples if it is indeed a sample of the Pac-Man death. No, I, yeah, I'm, I'm with Steve on that. I mean, and this will come up later too. It might even be to the detriment of the rest of the album that this was one of the tightest tracks, but we can get into more yeah, of that as we go. We'll, we'll get into it. Yeah, but yeah. but uh, they, they, their comedy definitely comes back later in, the, later in the album. In fact, it comes back very soon. First of all, uh, we have a track named Exquisite. Because, you know, we have, to, we have to be sophisticated about this. Sure, pinky, of course. Pinky out. Yes, pinky, pinky out. out. Pinky exactly. out, always. But um, it starts off with just drums, which don't even sound like they're starting in the beginning. They're just drums out of the blue, kind of the yeah. way Preludes started. Um, but this band doesn't really like clear-cut beginnings or endings. It's just drums in the, in the beginning, as if they were just caught in a practice session. And then we go into an even, an even goofier segment that sounds like two other instruments caught in a practice session they sort of a guitarish thing as well as a very pitch bendy warbly bass yeah and I, I really liked the drums in that intro albeit that they were brief just because they were playful like the whole entire previous track was but then they do deteriorate like steve was saying and when we go into this other section it almost seemed like it was disconnected and as the track goes on it feels less that way but in that half a second i was like oh wait where'd the drums go i was enjoying that and then and then it, it makes this odd shift that does make sense for the track as a whole as we get to describe it more. Well, the, the it's the kick swing drum. thing. That, yeah. That's what it carries over. It's this like one, a two, three, four, one, a two. That's what it carries over. It's just there is a little bit of a a little bit of a clip there. The really bestial bass that shows up <laughs> and starts fooling with it. As, I loved it. As much as I enjoyed the bass in the previous track, and I really did like the way it was doubling a lot of stuff and working... Uh, uh, really let it down. This felt like it was just growling. And when it takes over for the heavy kick beat we got, I was totally on board. And I'm liking what this guitar, wah-wah guitar sound is. It's very synthesized, but yep. it still has that heavy twang I would expect from a physical instrument. So when this actually transitions into the saxophone, here's where that, I think... That would be 56 seconds in, because we do get that for a little while. And it does set us up with the melody. Like, it's not a transition. Like, that was the melody, and then the saxophones will repeat it and fill it out. And that's where I really think the saxophone becomes an identifying factor for this album. In the previous track, I didn't know what it was doing. Here, it feels like, yes, all right, now we are definitively the lead of the album. We are that's definitively true. the melody and the primary focus. But there are other reasons that it's the lead, and that's because this is basically a jazz standard in many ways. It's, it's built like that. It's it's a kind of a, a big band and swing. You know, it is it is swing because it's it's 4-4 four, four time, but it's with the, the and functioning more like the third of a triplet, so it's one, a two. 
three, four. Da, 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 da. I can hear the melody already right now, but it's like that four chord jazz standard built around F, but those saxophones are your crooner. That's who you paid to see at the club in Vegas. The smoothness of them, it, it's impossible. It actually sounds like they've had a nightly show for 30 years. I want to resurrect all the crooners for this piece and so they could play with them. Yeah, there's a lot of black and white suits going on right now. There's a lot of glitch. There's a lot of glimmer. There's a lot of pizzazz, I guess. Like, these are the words you would use because those were the words that were invented to describe this sort of a go. feel. It is, it is very much of the time, yet it still has a little bit of the modern infused in it, mostly in the bass, a little bit in the percussion session as a whole. Well, let's hold off on that for a moment because I, I do, I would say it was, it's pretty traditional up to a point, and then we get the modern stuff later. But let's, let's just go into section B for a second because section B is around one minute, 20 seconds, where we have similar melodic ideas, but a, a slightly uh, a new chord progression based more around B flat minor instead of F minor, which is also really kind of a classic move, just shift up a four. But I was, it's funny because I actually was glad I waited on this album until Christmas because this track actually made for some wonderful Christmas music until the the thing that I think you're you're about to set up. The guitar. The so metal we, guitar. We, yeah, we get to the B section and almost out of nowhere, it takes this odd shift to a very rock and roll guitar. And what's strange to me is that it feels like a guitar we would have gotten in maybe any other album, but this one, I don't know, there wasn't a lot of omnipresent guitar before this. There was guitar, things that felt guitar-like, but this is for sure just like a, you know, a rock and roll guitar, and I was kind of baffled. I actually thoroughly enjoyed it, because as <laughs> Steve liked to point out, jokes are going on. This is a mockery, because, yeah, the tone is completely out of left field, but the actual progression of this guitar is a simplified, slightly pared down, and a restarting version of that saxophone we already had. It was replicating it, but it was also stripping away the glamour that we got. It was rusty it was gritty it was <sighs> taking that rhythm of that saxophone and turning it on its head making it feel a lot more abrasive all right that's the one area where i will agree with you the only thing that i think this carries over the only thing is that swing element because you still have that a little bit i mean our folks with the things we're talking about is a one minute 48 seconds how could you miss it it's the metal guitars that show up in the middle of a jazz standard but I, I, one reason I set up, just before I get into the, the swing thing, one reason I set it up the, the Christmas thing is because it made me think like, oh yeah, some some nice uh, corporate Christmas party, you know, that's what sections A and B are as a pair, something truly exquisite, again, as the track tells us it is, and yet when those metal guitars show up, it made me think that this was some kind of like campy metal Christmas song, of which there have been so many, you know, released over the last 20 years, and that metal Christmas thing never did anything for me in and any way. Whatsoever. And if you're a fan of Trans-Siberian Orchestra and want to send hate mail to Steve... I actually like nice Trans... Reference. I actually nice like reference. Trans... I, I, li I like the Carol of the Bills. I'll admit yeah. that. I'll just, I just like that one. It's the only one I'll... You can email him at steve.nagel at right. Well, of forget course. the Christmas thing. Forget the Christmas thing. We're, Christmas is over now, and of course that's not the goal here. But yes. but what was the goal was to at least throw you a little bit with the metal guitar. Something sure that, did. that contrasts with with the rest. And I don't think there's as much crossover here except for perhaps the swing thing. It did add a new time signature. You're not in 4-4 four, four anymore. Um, it's sort of like two measures of 5-8 and one measure of 7-8 combined. So 
assuming that the swing part was in 4-4, so I'm switching to 8 now because I feel this part about twice as fast, although remember it still has the swing element. So you're counting in those 5-8 measures, so remember there's a 5 here, it's like 1 and 2 and 3, 4, 5, 1 and 2 and 3, 4, 5, 1 and 2 and 3, 4 and 6 and, and then it restarts. But see how I'm counting the and, it's not perfectly in between, it's on the third of the triplet, boom, that's swing. That's the only similarity, that's all I see. Other than that, I didn't find this as interesting. It just I, seemed confusing to me. It, I, like I, I like the, the point, but I get that's the point. It didn't work for me. I don't <laughs> care if it's the point in this moment. I liked the guitar if it were completely isolated and not in this song. It wasn't bad guitar work by any means. The guitar work was fantastic, but it felt just out of place for this song. And even when it comes back later, it's even more showy guitar solo. And it just, we talk about masturbatory guitar solos all the time, and it felt like it was leaning in that direction. And I agree completely, but also forget about even later. Forget about the, the time that it comes back, the metal section. If, let's talk about the, the transition back out of this because oh, yeah. remember it's bracketed it's just kind of thrown in here in the middle but when it leads out of it I like I don't think it wrapped up very smoothly I assume again it's a part of their sense of humor but what happens is that the guitar just dies you have that one and two and three four and six and it, uh, and it just wraps up boom dies and then the drums are confidently working through the gap because they're there in the background yeah. but they're just and then suddenly the saxophone's back it like nothing ever happened it's it's interesting Interesting, but it's very weird. It, it wasn't as smooth as some of those transitions in transit. And while I am going to have further problems with this track, I would argue that that was actually very befitting what this section right. was doing. Cool. So you take after their sense of humor in that case, and you appreciate that. I don't that. even know if it's humor or not. Uh, I think it's more of just a bit of musical of humor. Yeah. Yes. They're quite literally trying to play a joke. Uh, in this case, I really feel that the guitar meshes nearly perfectly in trying to be the saxophone and because of just the difference in sound, just the difference of what the instruments can do, the fact that one is so gritty versus the smooth and glamour of a woodwind like the saxophone, it's supposed to be abrasive. It's supposed to be mean. And when you get back into it, it's supposed to be abrupt. It's supposed to be saying, no, 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 no. We're putting, the, we're the re-gilding yeah. everything. We're repainting the gold statue. Kind of like, right, if this was, uh, let's use the Christmas corporate, corporate Christmas party then. If, the, if, if a band was hired to play exquisite, delicate music in the background while everyone has cocktail hour, then these guys just kind of trolled them a little bit. Well, no. This is the band that showed up and said, we're going to sneak this here. This is the song, the same song being played for the waiters and the staff and everybody else who's not at that party. The janitors, the cleaning ladies, and everybody <laughs> this, else. This, this is music is the for people, the working man. Well, no. More than that, this is the, the people that are getting boned by the corporation. <laughs> oh, jeez. They're, they're on the opposite <laughs> side. They're not having a fun party and with, you know, nice dining and those really high tables that you're not allowed to sit at because you're supposed to stand around and mingle and shake hands. All right, well, this then is the guys that are having fun in the, you know, the, the the heating room or something like that, where there's bare wires and, and bare piping and things of that sort. All right, let's talk about the thing that Matt previewed, because, of course, the similar thing happens here with the solos, and that is, well, the, after we get section A again, we return to section A, and then we go through section B again. I know section, section B is the section, the B-flat minor part. This is where the, despite being the more low-key part of this, it, it was actually kind of a... a I think a trombone solo. I'm not entirely sure, but 
but it was mixed pretty, despite it was that it was mixed pretty low, it was still kind of fun. And this still had the classiness about it. Uh, but then you throw back to the metal hook, which I don't even know if I want to call a section, I don't, a, a separate section. It's just a metal hook thrown in the middle here. We get that about three times in this piece. But then following that, we get another guitar solo, and this time it's the metal guitar solo, which I can only assume is sort of uh, redoing or reworking what the trombone was doing just a moment ago. And I feel like this is a song of contrasts for that. I, I love the fact that yeah. it is one lie on top of the other. One, okay, maybe things aren't nearly as great as they're supposed to be in this pretty trumpet, in this pretty saxophone-led section, but I also don't believe it's not it's nearly as desolate or as gritty or as rusty as the guitar-led sections. So when the oh, A section comes back, when the B section comes back, I'm actually not very forgiving until the solos both show up. And that's those where I'm solos... going to disagree with you because I really want to be in this A and B. I want to be in those... Uh, those those that crooning environment. I feel like it's a palate cleanser. Which granted, it's a little bit early in this album, but there's something so classy about it that I I, I can't turn away. I could just tell they really want to. They they only want to set that up just to take it away. I think my biggest problem with this track is what John is praising it for is not enough for me. The art of this track is not enough to sell the track on me. Those stark transitions, while intentional, which if they are, and I'm not refuting that hands down, it just doesn't work for me. I think that again. Isolated, there is you know virtuosity in their playing without a doubt, but I just the song doesn't sell yeah, me. And look, listening more and more to the end, the the solo here does get progressively more interesting. This is the metal yeah. guitar solo. I think it was great. It maybe didn't belong, but it did it did get integrated a little bit more by the end, and it was progressively more interesting, more more manic, like it's trying to break free from this rusty old jazz standard. I I don't know exactly what they were going for. I think it's called having fun. I'm led, I'm, <laughs> led, I'm led to understand that this fun is something that humans enjoy. My big issue with this track is that it is two worlds that don't get blended together at the end of the day. It is the saxophone and it is the metal, and the two don't meet very well. They never really cross borders, and I think if that had happened, if they really had tried for an integration between the two to sort of create a summation of what was going on with this track... I think it would have worked a lot better for me. And I think that the integration of the two together would have shown the similarities in better relief with one another. Oh, whatever. They get a free pass after transit anyway. <laughs> Let's well, go to track I'm no, four. No, I'm not giving them any free passes. Uh, not yet. Track four, not big yet. trouble. Big trouble. Uh, does this sound like the intro to your 70s crime drama or not? Guitar well, noir. The, the, yeah. the, very, the very beginning does. I will say, though... Um, after that brief crime, crime drama intro, we get back to a structure that is more similar to Transit, I feel. Um, but it does, in the very beginning, feel like something you would play over, like, CSI Tokyo. Actually, you know what that is? You know what that transition right there is? See, I've always loved how in these 70s crime drama shows, they just cut right to the chase. There's something yeah. going down right in the beginning of the episode. First scene, there's a heist taking place. And whether it's just, like, a sample heist, you know, and to show off how easily your hero takes down these small-time crooks, or whether it's actually, like, a vital part of the episode's plot, doesn't matter. Point is, give them some action right up front, and then, scene right after that, is your hero on the beach celebrating and that's what we get just following this it's that light drum pattern mostly just the hi-hat and then this funky figuration there's a guitar and a bass doubled that's the intro and then 25 seconds in boom gets so much more romantic the saxophones are in 
paradise, to put it bluntly, and it's a great melody. And I would say that while I did mention Transit earlier, it's, it's similar to Transit in construction and tempo, but not necessarily in tone. The tone does take a different spin. Because the guitar gets mean. It keeps rearing its head and trying to steal the stage in a kind of a digital way. It feels like it's almost computerized. It feels like it's being run through some sort of synthesizer, just a little bit, just enough to give it a, a harder computer edge on a lot of the chords that are being shown. I love the way it just keeps rearing up. I love the way that it's not settling down, that it is actually trying to compete with the saxophone. Yeah, that was at 46 seconds in. the, And it, it does show it off as being a little bit of a jerkier piece because this, these shifts happen much quicker here. Um, and I don't really know what to call it. It's not an interlude or transition. I was almost inclined to call it a full-fledged part B, but it I really mean, just I... is that one thing. This quick-paced... little triple at the end there. I love that but it, it's one minute oh six seconds as soon as it gets to the end of that we slide right back into this paradise and it really is like the music of a tropical paradise and and as soon as we drop it there at the end of this section I think it did make me appreciate it a little bit more so that I wasn't as down on it as I was let's say the previous track because the transition here was clearly not a joke this was oh so well done well yeah it, it seems stark at first but once it slided back yeah, into the, the, the retransition it yeah. really kind of gave perspective to the whole thing, which is what I love about a, a song that has a strong progression. And that was probably one of my favorite parts in this track, and both in, even on the album, because that, that drop, I felt like I was... It, it even enhanced what I was feeling about the section already the first time I had heard yeah. it. This time, I felt like I was cruising on a highway. It added more to the, yeah. the A section. Like on a Hawaiian beach or something. I can't say this is my favorite part, because remember I just said I'm not giving them a free pass. This is the <laughs> song that gives them a free pass, because that A prime or almost almost an exact a that 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 follows we go into a bridge with the space organ of peace that is just it's out of left field it's i don't like a, really know what they're doing with a, it a yet a whistling synth around yeah. a minute and 25 seconds kind of a bridge here because we're still grooving it's still smooth but there's a slight bit of longing all of a sudden which is why i also was a little bit unsure about uh, about what the story was. But once again, they retransition into the A and integrate this instrument and integrate this idea so beautifully. That's where we so really get the A prime. Yeah. I was thoroughly entranced at this point because I'm liking all the color that they're adding between their primary sections, their A sections. But this this is really just taking the the, the, the interludes and the Bs and the Cs and the Ds and the bridges and bringing them just better forward when they're being put in relief with these A's. This is kind of what you would get out of like a classical sonata, essentially. You have that closing section which starts to blend the elements and and he, he, th we don't see that too much. Often we see like, oh no, there's a section A and there's a section B and then you'll have something else, something separate to bridge them. But then here we actually have that closing section that borrows elements of both. It borrows material from both. But yeah, that, that, uh, that Paradise Melody returns at 2.05, and this time it's got a more prominent guitar comping line. It really brings out some of the luster. But the C section at 2.25, this is strange because we ring out with some amplifier feedback that gets used in a more distorted guitar solo. Very strange, very prolonged, almost was about to say this was a little bit out of place, but then it's not until 3 minutes and 28 seconds that we bring that part B uh, interlude, I'll just say part B at this point, it just sneaks its way back in there, and that, that is what, I guess, 
classical inspired jazz prog is all about. <laughs> it is a great contrast between the mean guttural feel of this abrasive guitar and the very clear glassy synth that's coming. The two of them are playing off each other so well. It's it's a real yin and yang kind of a moment that I just love to wallow in. I just yeah. love to experience this. And all of the solos that occur amidst this, by the yeah. way, are fantastic. We don't we're not doing them justice go. because very often when we say the solo, it's so obvious. This is the solo. We will be with the solo for a while. And what can you say? It's a great solo. Uh, you know, probably maybe not Jimi Hendrix, but it's great. This is not <laughs> the case. This is not the case here. This is like they're all good, but they're all intertwined around the more interesting thing that I think we we like to talk about more. And that generally is the way these sections interweave. Say, for instance, part D, which I guess I might as well call it that, four minutes and 44 seconds, piano lounge jazz. Yeah, I was, this, this that part... That was an odd one. This one confused me a little because while other, other transitions did integrate and did really kind of even give us a hint towards this, I didn't see coming at all. Nope. Because, Completely blindsided nope. by it. Because this was not a D section. As the piano progresses, it slowly draws in the synth, and then it slowly draws in some drum work. And then it's very so subtly and slowly the sax shows up. And you real, I realized it was trying to be another A. It was trying to be that Right, that and that, which is also idea. common. You have, you know, a kind of a new track beginning in the middle that may or may not bring stuff back, but it's meant to function as a pair. And it, it, it was a build backwards into this A section, yeah. into an A double prime. Oh, that very was weird. so nice. I enjoyed this as a whole almost by itself, but because I've already gotten that with the way the guitar keeps showing up or the way my bass synth keep showing up and the way they're being integrated it feels like we're not getting a core a that we built in the very beginning they bring it back to the feel of a yeah it just keeps going and it keeps just saying well okay we have a b c and d we're gonna make an a b a b c a a da we're gonna just keep taking these four core elements or five core elements and mixing them up so that you get one in the beginning you get just a letter, and then the letter is going to have a little asterisk because somebody else shows up and somebody <laughs> else is presenting this idea. So it's less sectional and more just some of the finest integration of ideas that I've ever heard. I will say that even though I was kind of blindsided by the piano section, I did love it. And it, it, John's right. It does. It, the whole song does come together really well, and it's why I think this takes me back though not exactly to how I felt from Transit. I still think Transit was a better track, but I think this is still more in the vein of what Transit was doing, and I think possibly the integration was executed better, even if I didn't enjoy it as much. The thing is, we're always wrestling with that. We like tracks to develop, right? We like them to develop and add new material, new material, give me something new, kind of push us on the edge, but we always like a story. Yeah. And stories that completely abandon where the character came from, they don't feel real. And, yeah. and and that's why we're always struggling with this. But the main thing I would say to someone who might, you know, interpret this uh, our discussion here as being some, sort of, some form of hypocrisy is that you just have to let it happen. <laughs> you yeah. have to let it happen and see exactly what they do. Because each and every one of these, these sections will 
once they drop, like once that piano lounge jazz drops at 447, it will lift your heart in a very, very special way. And mm -hmm. then you need to see exactly what happens with it. Once the drums and the noir synth enter in here, it just gets progressively sexier and sexier, giving kind of lending uh, some of the feel of the opening A. So even though it's not the exact same material, you're in the right ballpark. Um, it gives the same t kind of feeling and, and even setting by the time we finish out. Oh, and actually, so, by the time we finish out, we, we end almost in a... Uh, I, want, I, I would describe this as one of those things where the band does everything. Yeah. Like, it's just, it's just everything at once, and we're going to throw it splat. Yeah. And that's how the track ends. But y you got to give them points for, uh, for going for it. And that's why I consider this track to be pretty much the best of both worlds. You're getting a lot of new elements coming in, but the through line isn't one through line. It's just an interweaving of these different elements, these different stories just coming in and drawing out. And for me, that's, that's the best of both worlds. It's music for the soul, and with music for the soul, we get track five, Interlude. Um, so this is we're a already kind of halfway through. Yeah, this is a palate cleanser. Clear and simple. It gives us a moment to reset, and considering, you know, prelude, absolutely you jumped into the middle of something, here we're getting um, something that characteristically is similar to prelude, but it's definitely designed to take us... It's a transition. It's an interlude. It's designed yeah. to take us to track six. You get those chimes in the beginning, and then kind of that... <laughs> there was really I, I, quick, really quick, like a machine gun sound effect. And then, boom, we burst into the heart of a club. This strange, yeah. with these profound subwoofers just rattling us from every direction. And and melodically, it's kind of another one of those climbing patterns. Even though mm -hmm. I noticed we really reach the same plateau each and every time, it's made to sound like it's constantly climbing. A ding, 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 ding. I with the pitch that, bend, I love it. I call yeah. that the uh, synth pan flute, because that's what sure. it feels like. The attack sure. feels very similar to uh, a woodwind like that, if, and it feels very secular in its notes as well, which you would get with a pan flute. So for for this, I mean, it was 80s. It was, it was of that kind of a feel, yet still retains those subwoofers, which definitely feel a lot more modern at yep. the end of the day. So it was sort of like, this, this hey, felt this is like electronica the, ideas. It's electronica, and there's something about it which feels very futuristic to me. So this, yeah. at least, is one of those components that I think is 100% uh, locked step with the emotion that Prelude gave us. And of course, you should that is to be expected with something that, that has the same suffix. But still, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah it just this is kind of where... This is like the fringe line where I feel the album could go if it didn't have those jazz leanings, which is where I am kind of starting to come around to see like why John, you know, would say, oh, well, the traditional stuff is, is sort of holding it back. But I don't know if I wouldn't want an album, like there is plenty of material out there like this, mm -hmm. who constantly like Electronica, who's living on the edge. And, and I think I really loved it as just as just what it was, as an interlude, as this little moment to say, hey, we could we could be in the future tomorrow if we really wanted to. Well, and it's also there kind of also this, I think, is an homage to other stuff that's come before. Like, we can dabble in all sorts of stuff, and here's us playing with this specific idea yeah. briefly, and then we're going to move on to what we do best. Our instruments are from, they're, they're, they're from every era, not just yeah. one specific yeah. emulated era. And because of the way it just jumps in and jumps out, it's another one of those, like, a moment or an eternal jam. Make up your mind. And then we move on to Scattering, the title track of the album. Now, I have a lot of problems with Scattering, and I'm going to be upfront with that. Oh. This is probably my least liked track on the entire album, and I dare say I might actually dislike it. But the thing that we get in the very beginning is something I want to point out as being wildly good. 
the piano and satellite tones. And the well, reason for it is the piano is the nice, steady tone, and the satellite tones, the synthesizer that's going on there, which feels like it's Voyager out in space beaming back to us, that's what's playing the pianos up and down and around in coloration. It was a keyboard, but it was very it was very tinny, so I do see connecting it to something that is a lot brighter or higher, and how much higher can you get than a satellite? And you had just said, this is the future, and here's a future that I felt like they were going to go, like, minimal. I thought they were going to do something that completely went out of left field, yet still this felt identifiably progress. It still felt like it was right in the vein, just being so simple, two ideas put together, and we have to expand from there. I want to say, though, this intro, my descriptor for it might be one of the dumbest things I've ever written in notes, and I will say aloud. But to get an idea of exactly how to describe how it felt for me, if you're a fan of Wayne's World and whenever they would do a flashback and they do the... It was better than that. Well, but, but, but my point is it sounded like an elevated version of that. I called it Wayne's World finger-waggling intro, which is... By far one of the dumbest things I ever wrote. But that with, with said... perhaps, though, a bit more seriousness behind it. Right. Because but, I see what you're talking yeah, about. Yeah. And, and there's a reason why I, I kind of like understand that. It's because it begins more like a story. Like mm. the same way Wayne's World would prompt you. Hey, well, here's what happened. You yeah, know, and then Or the daydream, that. whatever. But it, it begins like a story and less like a curiosity. And many of these tracks have very story-like curiosities, but they are still curiosities, so that's what makes them unique. But yet, here we are, track six, and because it just follows the interlude, it almost feels like this is the time to get the story. And indeed, there's some components here that, that also ring true to that, like the fact that the keyboard rolling along as, as color, perhaps almost as a guitar, would be used purely for color in a post-rock track. It leads me almost to another genre, and it's that, that sidestep that also gives me a strange feeling of exposition that I hadn't had before in the album. And then we get the saxophone, and then when the saxophone steps in, I feel like it's actually doing the complaint I was doing earlier, but the, I guess, quote, right way. It mm. shows up, and it is becoming the lead. It is definitely... Uh, filling out the spaces and being your primary focus, but at the same time, it is emulating a voice. It is doing the best of both worlds right now. But the space it starts filling up doesn't feel like it's really going after anywhere after a while. The drums start coming in, and they amble around to try to find the pulse of this piece. But at the end of the day, this opening section, this opening A section, feels like it's it's not even running in place. It's just walking in place. It's spinning around in circles. It's not really going anywhere for me. Well, and I would say that it's not necessarily not going anywhere, but I will agree the sax waltz starts strong on every kind of cyclical motion in the A section, it hits several notes before kind of meandering towards the end of its run. Yeah, you, and you it, mentioned before that it wanders, and yeah. I think that's a good way to describe it, which is a little bit strange, and it kind of, I guess, uh, popped the bubble of the story that I was to expect, which is why I was a little bit confused at this moment. But let's jump ahead to a minute and 15 seconds, because here the keyboard enters in with, by taking on a, a little more of a menacing stance, it finds itself all alone now, kind of weaving through these chords like there's something coming. There's something around the bend. By the way, a little strange anecdote. I had a dream at some point a few months ago that was all based on there being someone next to me. I don't know who it was, but they were telling me it's coming down the street. And that's all they said. And that was really terrifying in the dream. And I never saw what it was. It just said it's coming down the street. 
And he said it with such conviction. And his children were there, and they were terrified, and no one said anything. Maybe while we were hiding a, in a weir- warehouse. Maybe it was the trolley problem, and you wouldn't be able to see the trolley until someone actually pulled the lever to sh- switch it to your track. That could have been it. We talked about this back in the Life is Strange episode and the trolley oh, problem okay. and everything like that. Okay, But right. it's coming down the street. I'm yeah. not going to find that timestamp. Okay. <laughs> so we don't want to really <laughs> connect our material that much. But, uh, yeah, I, I guess it's just it's that much of a mystery, though, as that dream was. There's something coming, and I don't know what it, what it is, and I feel like they're going to pull the same fast one on me as the dream did because I woke up, by the way, and I never found it, never saw it. Later on, I had to kind of draw what I imagined it to be. But here we get a, I guess this is the thing, and it's a bellowing synth at 1 minute and 33 seconds, which really is pretty neat because it's kind of just these pull-offs. I don't really think it's a bass bass. It's just these pull-offs on a synth bass, probably all synthesizer. But although it had kind of flung back to interesting curiosity music material, it was too enjoyable for me. That bass, that in tandem with the drums, it just it was addicting. And it was only the slight visage of a fuller story that I felt a little robbed of. Yeah. See, it woke me up from the dream. Well, and also, I mean, this this song is one of the first times where we kind of really go from A to A prime to A beta to A. <laughs> like, it's just kind of re- re- reinventions on similar, though not the same, kinds of um, progressions. Like, the that mean, synth, the first couple of notes it hits sa- does sound similar to the sax. Yeah, and that's something I couldn't get out of my ears. It, it felt like... The melodies were not trying to go away from right. home. The home was there. The home was that opening sax. And the, the opening sax wore on me before our first minute was up. So as we're going through them all, and as we're coming back to that home stretch, and we're going from A to A prime to A to A double prime to A to A triple prime, and we're really just sticking with the bass being very prevalent, the drums being very prevalent, yet both of those elements are still very background and, it's, it's and often providing the color. clearly new material, but it's often similar characteristics. And yeah. the fact that these characteristics are kind of st- Stagnating for the track is why I'm just I was disenfranchised one sixth of the way through it. I would disagree that they stagnated, but I will agree that there were repetitions of themes that I didn't think were necessarily needed to repeat. Because even when we get to that double B prime, as you mentioned, it's playing a similar melody, but now a guitar is playing off it instead of the synth, and this turned it into a solo. And at this point, it's starting to feel like a series of incomplete ideas. Now, good ideas nonetheless, ideas that I really like, but still don't feel like they have any resolution. And that said, like John argued earlier, this song is called Scattering. It's a scattering of incomplete ideas. And so artistically... And we're sitting here debating like it's a... And so artistically, I would say it makes sense for what the whole is supposed to be, but... I though I found myself liking most of it, I can see why people might come to conflict with it because it doesn't really resolve. It just kind of tries to reinvent without evolving. And a lot of the other tracks did that. They kind of reinvented and moved forward. Reinvent without evolving, I think, is a really, really good way yeah. to sum- summarize this track. And and even to simplify it further, I think no matter what you call it, whether you call it scattering, is call it whatever, it, I'm just waiting for that thing. 
I'm yeah. just waiting for that thing, that, that theme, and it only has to be one theme very often because previously their themes have been stellar. And often I can remember, I can just bring them up right in the spot. I can hear them in my head. This one is harder for me to, to sort of summon. Not impossible because further into the week it did pop into my head. Do, 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 These kind of wandering ideas. It doesn't have those same like plateau-esque melodies that so many previous tracks uh, had developed. That said, I am going to leave this track by saying it, it, it's still virtuosic. Yeah, <laughs> like, absolutely. The yeah. thing you have to say at the end of all of this is that yeah. you know even the dueling guitar solos here, yeah, it may kind of go back to being... It may sound retrospectively a little bit masturbatory only because we can't think of the theme. If you can't think of the theme, then how is the solo going to affect you in its own right? Because solos, ideally, are supposed to be representative of those themes and supposed to push them along. But if the core theme is not in your head, then the solo is kind of just like a guitar solo in the ether. It's just thrown in there and they're dueling and you don't know what the argument is. These incomplete items and I'm glad you brought that up uh, it's the first time on the album I guess we're getting incomplete themes incomplete items, incomplete ideas. It's the first time I feel like the A section was never done and the subsequent sections because they were building so heavily off of the first A just couldn't finish the statement. I don't so even want to commit to saying of... incomplete only because I think the only reason we register it as being incomplete is because we weren't sold. Well, I think it's mostly because I don't feel like there's any resolution in any of these sections. I don't feel like there's a culmination in any of these sections. And lacking a culmination that we've gotten over and over and over again, whether I'm um, for it or against it in the previous tracks, those culminations, those, those plateaus, I saw... I enjoyed because they were very well designed here. I don't feel like there's any plateaus. I think that might be the word I want to use. Sure. And I would my final note on this track, I think, before we move on to Traveler Track 7, is I think the thing that distinguishes this from other tracks the most and makes it feel the least like a complete idea, the way I was describing it, even though we're trying to stay away from the word incomplete, is that it didn't feel as playful as other tracks did. I think that was the biggest thing, is that in maybe moments it did, but on the whole, there wasn't that air of fun and playfulness. That playfulness has... can really add to memorability. Right. And there's no shortage of that for me in track seven, Traveler. Right. So this... Um, this we get, when the sax comes in in this track, it's taking on a characteristic we really haven't seen before. I almost likened it to a lot of my favorite klezmer music because it just had this liveliness that a lot of klezmer music It was has. almost like a child there running something... through a field. It was, it was like, it was just all over the place. It, it was, was gleeful. fun. It was unabashedly gleeful. Yes. I, I confess for having the the music experience that I have, for having the, a little bit of the jazz background, I can't pin down like the scale or at least right. I, I didn't, I didn't sit down with this but particularly to, to, to try, but uh, in a really loose fashion, it sounds a little Eastern. Just put it over there sure. a little bit. I mean, Klezmer's over there, There's so, something just yes. extremely exotic about this that is not not in the same vein as the other jazz in this album. And yet, there's also something awfully familiar about it, probably because mm-hmm. you're, you're hearing other themes uh, in that in that dialect, as it were, yeah. about this uh, about this chord progression and this scale. And, and here's the thing. So far, this band does really know how to re-envision familiar ideas into something wholly modern. Notice that whenever... Uh, we're talking about sections on this track that 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 sound a little familiar. I'm not like oh uh, familiar as as a flaw because often that's usually where we're led in bands. Oh, familiar as a flaw, being like come on, push it, push it. 
This band's always pushing it, so of course, when I hear familiar here, it's always done really tastefully, really classily. And it's, for me, it's located in the drums. Once again, they're stellar, and it's because it's combining the idea of uh, that really heavy beat, like what we got in Prelude, what we got right from the beginning, a heavy beat, but this one is it's a little more spaced out, a little bit slower, and seems to be a little bit off the rhythm. And then in between, we have one of my favorite parts from earlier, the light scatterings of the cymbals, of the snare the very light touches the combination of the two is an incredible rhythm section some probably the best on the album just bar none it is a fantastic piece and that that's one piece if i could i'd isolate because working off of that rhythm section you could do almost anything simple anything just childish and it'll sound good and I want to speak to what I mentioned earlier about how this piece is a return to the playfulness that this band is what I essentially what I really love about it so far is that it takes it a next step further because this is the first song that truly feels flirty and dancey in this not even necessarily in a sexual way but just in this kind of you know come hither kind of just have fun come on this adventure I, I with me I kind of just said this weird islandy way <laughs> Yeah I know but that's I know. super well, generic Well it's tough because actually, I know ironically here when I'm using generic descriptions, I'm saying this band is doing something unique. Right. Like, it's because just where, I don't want to put it in a specific place to say, ah, oh, now this is Brossa Nova at its finest. The, no, it's the, none of that. The last thing we want to do is go, here's a box, let's put it in it. Put it uh, you in know, we're, we're, we're trying to stay Sometimes, away from that. Yeah, we just throw we're, references we're using, out of okay, the Okay, we're using the words jazz and prog to describe this band. Those are probably the two most open terms, so right. take that with a grain of salt. But <laughs> then but, when the B section shows up, and it's almost like the whole speed, while the rhythm doesn't change, the speed of the track just shifts down two or three gears because the saxophone starts going long while the kick drum that was setting our pace starts to become a little bit less prevalent, start a little bit more interspersed. So while the filler is still there, while the snares and the cymbals are still there, your tapping and your brightness is still going at that rapid pace, everything else just elongates. Like, you're playing with Silly Putty and just pulling it apart. This is one of those pieces, this is one of those melodies, specifically here, yeah, at, at one minute and three seconds, this part B, it, it's it's tough for me to even convey it in words, what it did to the original melody. Before, it was your traveling melody, and it was very exotic, and I, I was loving that in itself, But it's and it's true, you could dance along to it. It doesn't mean you can't dance to part B, but there's just so much of a uh, there's so much more depth here. It's it's gorgeous, and it brings back that those plateaus thing. Like you said, the um the 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 saxophones they play so much longer. It reaches these heights, and of course the the big shift here quarterly is that we shifted up a, a, a four. We shifted up a fourth. We were in C minor, and now we're kind of in in F minor. And the progression here is is fascinating. You still have like those four chord progression around this, but actually this moves into something else. It, it reaches a secondary plateau within this that was even more exciting within Part B, and that was I believe it was a B flat minor 11th, I'm not quite sure, but that one was breathtaking. And it was one of the high points, I think, on the album for me, and it was at a really astute position, track 7. And, uh, oh, I just... <laughs> this is this is the classy thing, John. That This is the stuff that, in many ways, yeah, part of it, part of it, I know, has been done in some ways, 
but there's something about the way they do it and the context and the unexpected nature of when it's going to arrive that I it just has me 100%. Because for me, the saxophone is just being lead. It's the primary focus. It's not trying to emote anything besides the general feel of the See, track. But I well, it's, trying to, really... it's trying to emote everything. Yeah, I disagree. The flirtiness, the playfulness... <laughs> That is all coming from the saxophone. But previously, I was felt like it was trying to actually tell me specifics. Here, I don't feel like there's any specific setting I'm trying to get out of this. With transit, it's hard to take it away from the idea of transit or exquisite and how bright and shiny and glossy everything was in that one. Here, it's just saying sultry. It's just saying ideals as opposed to locations for me. No, but here's the thing. Sultry, it's not just one thing because it's about the staggered reveal of this. Like I said, it's about context. It's about the, in the beginning, how it was just something, you know, uh, a low-key exotic melody. But then suddenly 32 seconds in, it repeats that low-key exotic melody, but it's not so low-key anymore, really, because it's got that guitar doubling it in the distance. It's that step upward and these constant steps upward so that by part B at 103, then I, it, it, it sounds more gorgeous, and then by the secondary phrase, when it reaches that second plateau, it's even more gorgeous. These are the kind of things that you just don't get out of the, I guess, the old standards, and I don't even know what kind of standard this would be in. Yeah, I think for me, because it flows so smoothly, it you know, even when we get to the synth solo after the, the kind of slowed down portion in the middle, you know, it, to me it just keeps, it gives this personality of the Traveler for me. Like... Steve mentioning earlier his, on his, that his loves ashore. Well, yeah, or just the fact that yeah, he's in this place that's not, you know, familiar to him and kind of enjoying life while he's there. Well, that f- sort of slow down, funky break, the way it gains it's on itself, the way it kind of doubles and redoubles in its own intensity, and then when the sax comes in, it's it's a different type of sax. It's a different standard. But the way it's presenting is almost the same ideal we got earlier. Or when that electronica bit, the piano, keyboard, we're not quite sure because it's in a nebulous area. It's it's another break in the idea. But once again, it doubles on itself. It redoubles on itself. The bass comes in. And when the sax shows up, everything is saying the same ideal for me, the same general sultry or exotica or something like that, but they're saying it in different ways. We're getting almost a snapshot of traveling. We're getting just the idea of going from, say, Cairo to Florence to Paris to London. Like Each of these different tastes have their own flair, but at the end of the day, they are very much an unknown. They're very much exotic and exquisite in their own little but similar ways. All right, I feel that now. It's just you were not didn't sound I like you were that, that into the early, saxophone yeah. very early on. I, I in I other know. tracks I wasn't. I'm trying but to argue that it, that it is it. dynamic and of course when I'm trying to d- describe its dynamic it's hard to avoid describing that it's dynamic relatively in relative terms to other stuff that is out there yeah. which is one of the only ways in which I, I am forced to kind of put it in the box that allows me to compare and say they're awesome. But we Makes never sense. fully close the box. We never tape no. up the box. It never gets shipped out. It's just it's just right. a box. Enough with the boxes. We have so many <laughs> open boxes. <laughs> All right. So uh, I guess that's it for this. Yeah, we yeah. I don't have much more to add to this. In fact, um, other than I think there's there's a cohesive nature in Traveler that 
is reminiscent of other tracks, but I feel still doesn't quite live up to those other tracks. I enjoy it and I like it, but I still think songs like Transit and Big Trouble kind of do it just a smidge better. I'm a, I Well, I kind of agree. I, I think Traveler was a really uh, late um, perk for me. Yeah, no, I would agree too. Um, but now we get on to track eight, which might be my least favorite track on the album, Endorphin. Not multiple endorphins, just one. Um, it. I don't know. I, I'm not sure where to place this because when it's from the very beginning, we get this kind of smooth, slow jazz kind of sound. It, it's reminiscent of like even soul and R&B, which is very different for this record. We haven't really gotten a lot of that up until this point. A rising sax that plateaus and then has a four tone drop off with scat drums and i really am enjoying these drums again i like just again you've been enjoying the drums the entire album but Let's these be are real. different it's and like, they they keep being different that's, that's what's true. great about it's it it's like saxes that rise in tandem and then later we sink into this like bachelor pad soul which right? is interesting but here's the thing i'm going to disagree before that it was not a great track or well i mean great is relative again everything is relative right, so sure. how can we discuss anything if everything is relative but it was if I was gonna describe it as a great track within the virtuosity that we already acknowledge that they have, then I would say it was that it's a great track, but why kind of track? Right. It does. In feel- other words, like I don't see it advancing the album in any particular way. Yeah, but I think the why is less strong for me than maybe the why that we get on the final track All right, yeah, when that's we get a, to it. That's but but different. <laughs> but I will agree with John. I, the the thing about the drums that you notice here and have really been true throughout is that the drums keep this album moving. Even if they're not stepping out that often, they are for sure constant. That keeps this album on the finger quotes right track. You feel the sense of motion pretty much throughout the record. Which I find is frankly amazing because that means that there's not one but two just stellar drummers well, working to, with this with with Prager working in this like super band that's well, going on. It goes back to what Steve read in the blurb that they got they became one giant band and became completely in sync. And the fact that we cannot tell the difference between the drummers is fantastic because it continues the lifeblood of this album as I was describing. Or it. it's not that we can't tell the difference; it's that it's just always great stuff. Right. It's actually true throughout most of these instruments. Yeah. Um, considering that interlude, I believe, is the split between one band and the other, or mm. one version of, of yeah, them yeah. and the other, which probably should have been mentioned at interlude, but oh well. <laughs> uh, it's just it's just amazing that the actual quality of the instruments hasn't changed it, much. No. Like the 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 actual for all our gripes, it's not because there's lack of talent. That's not the case at all. So yeah, he's he's got not one but two really solid teams going right now and I'm really jealous. But anyway, back to Endorphin. Uh, the B sections. After those really solid A sections that kind of get stale for me, we get Slow Rock Space Jam and then we go right back to an A section and this alternates and I I really want to say this is kind of like the opposite of scattering. Instead of a bunch of A primes, I feel like there for once is not a connecting piece between the A and B section. I would I would say that 
I, the drums are still the connecting piece, but it is it is a little more stark here. Um, I want to go back to what Steve was mentioning off the air, and that I think is really important to take with Endorphin is that this track seems to be kind of structured a little different, especially as we get towards the second half of it. You know, you had mentioned that it feels more reminiscent of a jam band than uh, you know a prog band. I did. There are more jam band elements that come like in the latter portion. Yeah. If I if I did only knowing that now that like that there are two separate bands here, then I would see the jam band influences being more on the New York end. Right. But uh, but here's the thing: we have not had the greatest experience, I guess, recently with jam bands because again, that like that rant I went on before about how we like people we like pushing material along but we also like a story and it's very difficult to do that in a kind of like a uh, stream of consciousness dram, jam band setting right so like you go back to episode 102 fuego by fish and yeah. you would just say oh crash chords are not into jam bands but you get something like this and it only becomes kind of like a part of the problem because right. everything here is so much tighter like i can't i don't i didn't even see a singular theme you know on yeah. fuego here at least you get you get something and you do get a lot of little connectivity like you get uh, things like the rising motion in is, that we get earlier in like section A gets repeated kind of in section B, but it's echoed more in the distance. There's yeah. little things here there. Section C is a little more guitar driven, so you always have the spotlighting thing that is a little bit different. Uh, this instrument is going to kind of redo what that instrument did. Um, I remember jo something John actually said off air, and he described this as being the best practice session of all time. Which, yeah. I mean, if you're going to be a fan of jam bands, you might as well want to envision it that way. That yeah. you were present for something that was a spur of the moment and that may never be created again but you were lucky enough to record it because that's what jam bands are all about yeah not just not just endorphin because i don't think this is the best jam band piece of all time but like the album as a whole really is just a perfect practice session maybe it's not the live show because frankly these guys live with either grouping of people would probably uh, I'd probably seize like halfway through like it would just be impossible to follow some of these things um, and with other works who knows maybe if if they were I don't know going for a different piece maybe if they get a singer and want to do songs or maybe if they wanted to do a specific theme or commentary it might change the way that feels it might feel less like a perfect practice session and more like a magnum opus but yeah, to be able to just kind of like walk in and and hear a band just do this off the cuff like would be phenomenal. I think I would uh, want to say though, any changing the construction of this band, adding a singer, having lyrics would really take away from what's here. I'm I think, inclined to agree with that. I think we I'm really lose just, the sense. I was of it. using those as examples of direction they would go for more solidifying theme work Got and it. things like that. Yeah, but it's just like who needs that when yeah. you have the saxophone that before was your crooner and didn't lose a step. Yeah, yeah. And I know? think I think it's still been alternating between lead instrument and vocalist. I don't know what it's trying to do. Uh, That's something I want to bring up in my end of thing anyway instrumental um, i think is where where this band is at and are, it's are we done with endorphin was it really just that not not good enough on this part? i don't want to like, say not good great enough. yeah we're, we're, yeah, we're kind of staggering here at the end of this track because we're we're really talking out of both sides of our mouths it's like it's it's, <laughs> yeah, it's not a great track and then all of a sudden it's the best practice session of all time i don't know what we feel about this track i'm going to tell you straight out that the the only thing that i have an issue with i love the virtuosity i, I think i could learn from these guys and just following every little maneuver that they that they do with the instruments it's just it all comes back to theme in the end 
mind. Yeah. Theme and melody are the things that I go back to, which seem like things you can overlook when you're involved in kind of a complex prog setting because they're just like, I don't know, no one wants a theme, no one wants a, a, a simple melody, you know, that's childish. Let's talk about, let's talk about figurations, let's talk about complex chord progressions and complex rhythm changes and all that stuff. But we, I, I think in the end, people really are looking for that one thing and melody do not under undersell how complex it can be. Clearly, I'm not lecturing to these guys. They already know that because they did it to me in the early part of the album. And there are distinct themes in these tracks too, but one thing Scattering has over Endorphin, which I think I undersold it for in retrospect, was its ability to use themes as a basis of an experiment, which they stuck to their guns on throughout the entire track. It was really quite stunning. Now, Endorphin has an interestingly blissful theme as well, but the sidesteps were just a bit too vast for me to call the entire track memorable. So if I did have to pick, maybe I'm a little more with the Austin crowd, I don't know, but then again, we also have track 9, Postlude, which is hard to judge just from an instrumental standpoint, because this track is chaos. It's 19 seconds of cacophony, but still very to me, feels very connected to the prelude and the interlude because it still has a similar sound if you can focus in on parts of it, but it is way more cacophonous and just jumbled. And it's I like these like, ideas, though. Yeah. So It's almost like it was just on, a condensed warm-up session. Like there was just yeah. one second of clarity and then... 15 seconds com- compressed into the next one second, right. and then one second of clarity. The back and forth of it is it's interesting, but it I wouldn't I wouldn't call it more than a legitimate just little 20 second breather. Right. I would say though that this is an important track to have because track 10 Werewolf does feel very different from everything else we had got. Now that said, you know I think having these. The, pre- the prelude, the interlude, and the postlude were the most effective on this record and the gave it a very strong arc. Theme is another story, but I think breaking it up that way, especially since you had two sets of musicians, I think was very a very good way to do it. You, you described something off air that this track was like dragging the rest of the album through like... Uh, through anything, honestly, through like a, a funnel, through a grinder, a field, through yeah. a grinder, yeah, just just compressing it all mm-hmm. in many ways, destroying it, which I think is interesting because the track that we get next, track ten, Werewolf, is probably the only track in this album that I'm poised to say wouldn't wouldn't belong had there not been at least that much of a self awareness to yeah. really separate it harshly. Right, and and that said. I do really enjoy this track, and if I made this track, I'd want to include it on an album sure. also, it, especially considering all the work they said went into compiling this together anyway across two states and The more you coasts. think about it, it's almost like a bonus track. Right. But so Werewolf is probably the most intense track on the record and the most disconnected because we still have jazz fusion, but this jazz fusion is absolutely compressed and battered with heavy metal guitar. It's crazy. It's it's actually a very simple track, though. It's an ABC. An A section is the the really heavy metal, kind of bloody guitar, very tribal, uh, towards the guttural end. The B is an angry, just instrument, an angry guitar, just purely lashing out. And C is cool down. Now, in each of these three sections that do get repeated four, five, six times, there's somebody, something accompanying it. 
First we get sax, then we start getting other instruments. Yeah, like that the was keyboard. the only thing I was going to say. The A section was lead saxophone instead of a guitar, wasn't it? For the ABC. And yeah. then when the next A shows up, another instrument steps in. The sax is gone. It's almost like right. he's introducing each instrument of the band. Well, even the saxophone really has the the demonic qualities of the guitars later because it almost sounded like it was summoning demons in the background. It was interesting. Heavy metal saxophone. Oh, geez. Why am I the only one excited about this? The, the I, saxophone I just... guitar, that's the whole thing. You know what? No, no, no. no. Here's the, here's the the whole thing. The whole thing is actually because I think for me, I hear the heavy metal. All right, the, the saxophone has those qualities, but I really hear the metal, of course, when the guitars come forward. Sure, it's everything in the background that is kind of framing the saxophone was interesting. But remember, they they've I, they almost have me familiar with the capabilities of the saxophone at this point because it's been put in so many different scenarios. Mm-hmm. So I guess by track ten, it's really more of a. Uh, what is this really where? The album was heading? No! <laughs> that's and, why there's postlude. And oh, that's love. why I consider this a showcase of the people involved. Yeah. The instruments involved. It's it's the first person to walks out on stage. It happens to be the saxophone. He plays with the backup members of the band in this case, or the backup idea. Uh, a section is to play in unison. B section is to play in contrast. And C section is to transition to the next person, who may actually overlap in the next A. So that saxophone kind of trails out when A shows up again. And then we get keyboard and then we get a different guitar and then we get bass and then even later the keyboard, on we the get synth, the drums the synth actually the, has the strangest solo of it of of them all come yeah. to think of it. i want to just gloss gloss over that because it, it holds it the tone like between the gap before that section actually arises and it's these long tones these weird it's weird chromatic solo that i just it, it was it was interesting. It was a collection of interesting ideas. I, I'm not 100% committed to this track because I, I, I think I've made it clear where my preferences lie, but it was still a good example of what they can do. Look at it like this. We've already had the final curtain with Postlude. This is the play actors coming out on stage and taking their bows. That's all this track is at the end of the day. Each of them is getting a moment to stand in the limelight, including the drums, and the drums go nuts on it, and it's it's my favorite part of the drums. But that's what's happening here. That's the entirety of the track. It's a bunch of different ideas, but all of them are to set up just a stage showcase, a, a strut down the aisle, if you will. That said, I... I really love this track for what it is. I I had a lot of fun with it. And it, it's as playful as the other tracks, but in a different way. I was headbanging to it. I got really into it. And I think that because Postlude was there as a separator, I accept this track as a bonus track, an afterthought, just something else that's as- not necessarily the arc or theme is reliant on. I'm willing to give it that leeway because of the structure of this record. So if we are done uh, talking about Werewolf, I will take us into our wrap-up. Go for it. All right. So first of all, off the top, I want to say I'm really sick of Steve bringing prog albums on this podcast that I end up liking. Hey, I brought a few. I brought like one. I said liking. I said one. Yeah, well, anyway. I never brought a prog album on that you haven't liked, actually. That's true. That is true. Um, But... um, Here's the thing is what I find with prog when we do it versus other genres is I find that every album that I've liked, I've liked for different reasons. Even the two times we tackled Godsticks, those albums were different animals. They were not, you know, I still love Envisage Conundrum more, but, you know, 
they were very different animals, and even reviewing them, it felt like they were very different animals. So here we've got a whole other beast entirely as well. But, you know, I think that it has one of the strongest arcs in a long time because it's self-referential. It refer other tracks refer to other parts. Prelude, interlude, and postlude really do frame the album really well and break it up really nicely. You know, and even though I don't love Exquisite and I don't really love Endorphin, they're not bad, and I don't hate them. I just I, there are other tracks and other things they do that I like more. I didn't have nearly the complaints about Scattering as John did, but for the same reason that John might have really liked Exquisite, I like Scattering because it was scattered. You know, and what I think is really interesting here is that we we all emphatically like this record for very different reasons at certain moments. There are moments that we emphatically agree on. Like, we all emphatically agree that Transit is one of the strongest tracks on the record. You keep using the word emphatic. I don't know if I'm quite there yet. All right. Well, at least I am. And I think the biggest thing for me is that, typically on instrumental records, I mean, it's no secret that I like to relate to lyrics. I like a story. I like to emotionally connect through words. But here... There were no super strong standout emotions, yet I still found myself really diving deep and enjoying it. And I think it's because it gave me the freedom to interpret to however I felt. And there were moments I was listening to this album and I didn't interpret anything. I just kind of let it wash over me. And then there were other times where I dove really deep and really found some strong connection points, especially in the song like Traveler, which... You know, if I were to get married again tomorrow, I would definitely have that played at my wedding because it just feels like something that even if it doesn't have Jewish roots, that I could see Jewish dancing being done to because of how playful it was and how, you know, just kind of all you, over the place. You it molded was. it to you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yep. But, you know, that said, we've talked at length about how virtuosic this band is. We've talked at length about how they're no fools. I think the only place that I would give this album you know a minor you know my minor gripe with it is that the theme isn't that strong the theme of the band and their sound is very strong as far as who they are and based on that blurb that steve read but having an album theme for what scattering is unless you take it as it's a scattering of prog tracks which i guess we could argue is the case i think that's the only place where i may give it a little off that said though I, I fail to find other issues with it, um, other than there are a couple of tracks that are very moment-to-moment -moment for me. So for me, this is upper echelon stuff. This is not at the pinnacle. There were some albums here that kind of still hit for hit 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 the stars and more, but they're definitely on their way. And honestly, I this album, like so many this year, actually have made me want to go back through the discography. They only have two other records from what I saw. I love the album cover on, oh, what was it, the... The one with the blue cover with the... the oh, I know which one you're talking about. I'm blanking on the, yeah. the title of it. But, ah, just the visual of it. I mean, and the al this album cover too, which resembled an owl, but made up of many different things. It was like a, the fra a fractal-based owl. It was, it was really cool. Um, but I'm, I'm getting sidetracked now. Damn it, Steve. My um, Always my fault. This album is easily a 4.6 for me. You know, I, I'm really passionate about it. I think they're on the right track to... like. I was a novice to Prague before this podcast. I openly admit, you know, besides the big band, big name bands that everyone knows, I was fairly a novice to it. And I've come to find that I really like it because Prague really is a super genre that really can mold almost anything into it, as they proved here with their 
jazz rock metal, you know, at the end of the album. So I, I'm really excited to listen to more of this and their other work, and I sit at a solid 4.6. I actually have a lot more complaints. A lot of them are nitpicky. I will admit that. But a lot of them, I feel, are actually really just really valid about this album. And there's, there's, there's uh, I guess, a lack of wow factor, which is weird to say about the, the, the quality that's going on right here. I guess it's the lack of the moments. I, that's the wow that's missing. I don't feel certain keys or certain chords or certain instances on these tracks are really just hitting me. I feel enveloped, I, but uh, because uh, they're so well-balanced, I think it's actually to the detriment that uh, nothing's shining forward and hitting me in the face and making me go, oh, that was unexpected. It's so well put together that nothing is really unexpected after the first few moments of a track. There's no point where I'm scratching my head going, they took a turn, they did something different. No, it, it feels like they're just that good all the time. I guess that's a complaint. Yeah. <laughs> it's a weird complaint to have, but it's not a a culmination. It's not a it's not stuff like Unvisaged Conundrum where we find a track that's just completely out of left field or three pieces that work together and are telling us such a, an amazing story purely through the instruments themselves that you go, well, that, that right there, that was a core idea. It's not the migration where we're getting evergreen and it's that instance of silence that is crystallized and personified in a minute and a half or two minutes of just ever so slight pattering it's it's not giving me visuals the way boards of canada and all these other albums that were not so reliant on lyrics or vocals or a voice or anything like that as much as god sticks sounds great i love the vocals it's the instruments i'm going to just say that um here they're just so fluid and so cohesive in the presentation and the composition work that it kind of washes away wow moments for me. And I think that is my complaint about this album. I can identify each track easily, but I can't identify moments. I can't identify that part that gripped my heart, that made me feel awe or ooh or a chill or warmth and that i think is the biggest lack on this album i think that's why i think that's where we're coming from at a different places i can name a plethora of moments like that and i think i just i'm looking at it from a different perspective and i think that's so but but unlike you i actually see a solid story in this album okay it is the story of the band and the disjointed nature. That's why we keep traveling between A sections and B sections and C sections. That's why you have transit and traveler. That's why ideas like Big Trouble and the way it seems to flow between four different sections bouncing in and out of one another. It really, it feels like this album is an explanation of the band. And Werewolf itself feels like it's an explanation of the individuals of the band. And for that, I actually am going to bounce it back up. And for as much as I feel like I don't think I connect nearly as strong as Steve and Matt, I know I'm higher than Matt. And I'm going to put it at a 4.8. Wow. As much as I don't feel like it's it's ever, it's going to be above a 4.8, I think giving it anything less than that would actually be, for me, an insult. Well, there's the exercise of crash chords, taking ourselves out of ourselves. Um, I will confess 
that when I was searching for a new prog band, because, of, I mean, when, when Matt said what he said about how different prog bands have, or different prog albums that we've done have all done wildly different things to him, um, despite that they're in the same genre. But of course, that's because it's a very diverse genre, but it's, it's not entirely by accident. When I go yeah. pick a prog band, I'm not trying to pick one of the pack. I'm really trying to give you different sides. And uh, it's not that I went in ahead of time thinking like, all right, I'm going to really try to get jazz. But I know when I found this, I know it wasn't any old prog, and I knew it wasn't any old jazz. Because mm-hmm. I've heard a lot of fusion stuff, and it doesn't always do it for me like a lot of that a lot of the time i run into very similar problems as what john i guess experienced on this album it's just very strange to me that he experienced it because i'm i understand that perspective i understand that feeling of looking at a band that by all rights is like oh yeah great not not part of the pack by any stretch jazz fusion is it's been around for a while though and i guess that's the thing because it's been around for a while there are a lot of people there that are just are in their little bubbles i've heard that you can even be in bubbles down to like your college town and whatnot like different people who went to that particular town and they decided to become music majors or whether they're a music major or not like they started playing with people around the town and then they start molding themselves together into this group that new people, freshmen who come in, then they start molding them together. And all of a sudden, you have a town that basically, a whole town that is just thinking like-minded when it comes to their brand of jazz fusion. Sure, it's unique. And sure, you know, it's sometimes good to be in little isolated bubbles because then you're blocking yourself out from the world. But I more often than not find bands that are attentive to the rest of the world and can both adapt to them while using that information to be independent of them because you can only know what you're being independent of if you actually know what's out there and I find this band to be an extremely diverse group which didn't have me in every moment but had me in so many moments from the first track to the last and even in when I'm the lace the naysayer in werewolf I'm still sitting there saying do I know any bands that are out there doing this I'm not a hundred percent sure it's at least worth the try and it is an album of experimentation and I do think you raised a pretty good point John that that is the arc here and it's it's funny we didn't really mention that all we, we kind of understood the album clinically that way but yeah, that's the focus. That's the artistic focus, not just clinical. But the one thing this album really did give me that it may not have given you is not just moments, but entire tracks. Mm-hmm. And those entire tracks, it's not just Transit. I love Transit, but I think it's Traveler too. And I think in many ways, it's also the prelude and the interlude. It's not often that I'm like, you know, shining, uh, showering praise on, on interludes and preludes, but, th- but frankly... They're, they're really crucial to the palate cleansing. You need them in this album. They're, and they're phenomenal. I could play, I could play uh, Interlude over and over and over. I could play Prelude over and over and over. Same thing for Transit. But Transit, to me, is a masterpiece. And honestly, masterpieces will always sort of bump up these ratings a little bit, even if it is just one. Although, to be honest, I think Exquisite has, has masterpiece qualities to it, and really so does Traveler. So, uh... I think that means I have more full tracks and more moments than you guys. But these ratings are starting to be a little weird because we're all rating off our own. And I think in the end, we're probably going to all end up in the same ballpark. Because I know that even with those masterpieces, and there is kind of a hole for me on the end of the album in terms of my feelings of it. Like emotionally, I am really, really close to the funky stuff, interestingly. And then, of course, the classy jazz stuff. That's just, they do that so well that I guess it does force me to leave some of the metal stuff 
a little bit on the side. It's it's interesting to me, and I appreciate it. I think that's that's more the way I should convey this. But just in terms of pure virtuosity, then that brings me back to some of the jazz albums that we've done. I mean, we haven't done a lot of jazz albums, frankly. We did uh, Twin Danger back in episode 152, and then I think we, of course, Chikoria back in episode 57. Comparing anybody to Chikoria is like an impossible but task. But remember, these guys got together to do Herbie Hancock tunes. Yeah, I know. Right? That's so, true. Which is not far, you know, from you know, that. Yeah, 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 so, for sure. And I hear all of that. I hear all of that. And I hear the prog. And this is enough to make it new enough for me that I want to bring it. I want to bring it to that 4.8. I think I just needed more in the end of the album. I'm going to be in the middle of you guys, uh, 4.75, which is a a nice, solid, in the middle of the upper echelon album for me. Um, It it was phenomenal. And I could learn from it the more time I spend with it. And Transit is a track that everyone in the world should listen to and certainly everyone in the jazz community so i have an experiment that i've been thinking about as we've been doing our wrap-ups that maybe we'll bring the audience in on but but maybe for the three of us to do we like to typically end an episode with a topic we're talking a lot about jazz fusion fusion in general and genres we've talked genres to death on this show but i had a fun idea there are genres that we've talked about that have been combined before but I'm curious if we can find one that we've not talked about before that we think the others have never heard of and talk about it as our first topic of the new year. For example, this idea that, like, jazz metal. I'm, I'm almost confident because I thought of it and rule, what is it, rule 34? The internet, if you can think of it, it's there. <clears throat> that there must be a jazz metal band out there somewhere. I mean, I know there's a folk metal sure, band. There is, yeah. I like the, so I'd... I'd be interested to challenge each other with maybe trying to either A, stump the internet and find a genre that doesn't exist, or B, find one we didn't think exists and then explain our findings. Because, like, I... Bluegrass classical. Actually, no. Bluegrass instruments, I've heard play classical before. Have you? Yeah, Uh, in the same sort of framework. Um... Classical, punk folk, like classical bluegrass punk folk. is probably well, see, folk. I've heard. Oh, they've heard that. Uh, yeah, so I've many heard times. folk metal. Folk metal. Old Death, which is a band that Joseph Matones wrote about on the website back in the blog days. They're folk metal. But I was like, oh wait a minute, no, Joe did that one. Um, it's just you know what the funny thing is, even the Decembers have a have a tendency um, to go a little punk at times. Yeah, and they do it within the folk framework, and so I think there's your folk punk, folk punk baroque mm-hmm. pop. Yes. Yeah. There you go. That's them. So, I think that's actually how I have to describe them, but I've specifically stated Baroque pop and then folk punk. Yeah. Like, I try to divvy up those two. Those, those, there's, they, they, they are one, not the other at the same time. But so the task is to find a genre that we think maybe I, the rest I've of us haven't heard of. I've done it before with heard math of, rock. With math rock. I and then that. And then present a band or describe an album or song that we found that fits that genre. I think it would be a fun little game to play on the first episode of the new year. I concur. Okay. I could definitely do one, and I bet you it'll be from like the 70s or 60s to boot. Yeah, of course like, you like, will. Like, I, could, I could find one. Um, but uh, so that said, so we'll take that on. And of course, listeners, if you want to engage in it as well, please comment on this episode or the next. But let's do a uh, our spam of the week, of course. Oh, actually, did you want to read our uh, newest request? Or do we want to save that for the new year? Because we did get a... a um, Fan but fan tweet. Might as well save that for the new year. Okay, That'll so be he knows who he is. Yeah, you are. Anyway, but uh, so take us out on a, uh, a, a a spam mail, and then I'll talk about what we're doing next a week. A properly composed and received email, lauding our abilities. Steve, go. 
What's up? I want to subscribe for this webpage to get newest updates. Thus, where can I do it? Please help out. That's weird, because we kind of plaster that stuff all over. Oh, uh, yeah. So. I mean, it's yeah. really hard to, like, to, to not find it. Right. It's Thus, a floating bar on the side. It's up on top. Thus, where can I do it? Please help out. Who wrote that? That's by VPS Windows. VPS? VPS. What's VPS? Ah, uh, but there is a Gmail here, and it's... Ooh, should I say his name? I want to just no, call do you it. out. Don't yeah. do it. Don't, don't do, do it. it. It's a trap. I won't. It's a trap. <laughs> anyway, um, all right. So talking about what we're doing next week. So if you're a fan of uh, us and you've listened to the run of episodes, first of all, I apologize for the first 50. But that uh-huh. said, um, that I feel like that number gets bigger every time we apologize, too. No, it's, too. it's been bit. 50 for a very long you time. You used to say single digits, and now yeah. it's, like <laughs> it's like single like digits. Now it's like God. at least the first 25. But anyway, you know that we've Double. reviewed The Lonely Island a few times because they're a fun band to go back to, and we're all moderate to actual fans of the band. Um, They recently this year did something that I was a fan of back in the day that Spinal Tap did. And it's three comedians writing music and writing a movie and putting them together in a mockumentary format. Except this movie and album is taking on the recent trend of pop stars releasing tour diary videos where they talk about their lives, their album, and their tour. And the album and movie I am talking about is, of course, pop star, Never Stop, Never Stopping. And we are actually going to be approaching this how we've done once before in the Life is Strange episode. We're going to be talking about both the movie and the music at the same time and how one interacts with the other. To be frank about previous episodes, we've done soundtracks in the past and we all agreed and found that when we did a soundtrack to just stand on its own as a soundtrack, it did... It, did, it didn't really do justice to the movie. I mean, I think we see it the most when we reviewed the Pacific Rim soundtrack. Whereas I felt that it was very integral to the movie, but without discussing the movie, it left John and Steve kind of with not a lot to say. Well, and I think, I've actually saw the movie, I believe maybe even with you at the time. Yeah. There was nothing to say without and, the movie. And so I think that this is also interesting because like Spinal Tap, which I mentioned before, the same people writing the movie wrote the music. And... Does that work? Can it be independent? I mean, we know the Lonely Island do mishmash of albums before that never have a narrative. That's just joke after joke. Mm -hmm. So will that work when it's connected to a movie? And they've also done a lot of skits oriented around the uh, the music itself, which is also a curious thing. They, like OK Go and a few other bands out there, they've always had a visual component associated with their music. So it's it's a little bit of a gray zone as it is. Which is why it's not going to be rated, probably. Right. So effectively, this is your last rated album of the year. Like Life is Strange, we want to we want to take this moment to laud other media or at least discuss other media. I mean, if we find that we're finding that we don't like the album or the movie, then we won't necessarily laud it, but we want to at least talk about other media and the music that goes with it in a way that's a healthy discussion instead of rating it. And so... Nice light end of year thing, right. because certainly the year in review will be a chore. Yeah. Well, eh, we'll may, see. May or may not. Anyway, I think there's a couple of gimmies up. already for my list. See, I, so think, I think just to kind of look behind the curtain a little bit, I'm finding I might struggle with album of the year. I don't know that there's a clear winner for me this year. I think I have three. Um, <laughs> but, but that said, 
um, I think Popstar was a great way, and I had said this months ago, it was a great way to kind of finish the year because I think in the new year for 2017, a big thing we want to do is expand the site and podcasting, as we've said before, but we also want to expand what we do here. We want to try and find new things that we can do. And Life is Strange was a great experiment that I thought was a success. It was a lot of fun, and it was a great new way to approach something that we loved with something new. And it was my idea, so it was obviously going to be a hit. Right. On that (laughs) horrible bombshell, we will wrap up as we always do with Music is Life and and Life life is is good. Good. If you enjoyed this and other album analyses, topics, and guests, please subscribe to the Crash Chords Podcast on iTunes, where you can also rate us and review us. For more media, also subscribe to Matt's one-on-one interview series, Crash Chords Autographs. To receive emails on all new content, subscribe at the top of our homepage. Also receive updates by liking us on Facebook, following us on Twitter at Crash Chords Web, our Tumblr, and our YouTube channel. And remember, keep the discussion going, because music is life, and life is good. If you have any questions or comments, feel free to share them in the comment board below each post. Otherwise, email us directly at admin at crashchords.com.